0: Broadway musicals have been nominated for the 1984 Tony Award. Tonight, you will see them all. The first is the Tap Dance Kid.
1: Welcome back to My Little Tonys. Welcome back. Right now, we're going to talk about the second half of the 1984 Tony Awards, which is mostly flops.
0: Yeah. This season was kind of sparse in general, and it's surprising that so many of the shows ended up flopping. Um, There were only 34 new offerings this season, as opposed to in the previous years, 49, 45, and 51.
1: Oh, man. Well, I think the 80s were hard for for Broadway and for the Broadway musical especially. And maybe one little thing to note before we get into it is that there was actually a big controversy this year over some of the nominations. And the big one was that there was a revival of Death of a Salesman starring Dustin Hoffman that only got, it only got nominated for Best Revival and it did win. But every every other, you know, everyone in the cast was snubbed. Like before that, Dustin Hoffman was one of the favorites to win the Best Actor Tony and he wasn't even nominated And that led to kind of like a shakeup of the Tony voting process after that and people like demanding more transparency in how that process happened, which I thought was kind of interesting, but not interesting enough to read the details of what that means because it's all very like awards bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, Um, and in Jeremy Irons' speech, um, which he won the Best Actor in a Play award that um, a lot of people thought should have gone to Dustin Hoffman, uh, he, in his speech, calls out Hoffman um, and comments on it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, I'm honored to be singled out amongst the
1: extraordinary performances I've seen from other actors here on Broadway this season, both those nominated and unnominated, thank you for that.
0: And even reading um, and going through archives of local newspapers, this scandalized, you know, this was something that people noted um, across America. And I think at that point, a, a selection of 12 retired esteemed people in the theater community were the ones who were nominating and then, you know, close to 700 other people weighed in. But... Yeah, I don't know if it's totally fair that only 12 people were picking four options for the rest of the body of voters to vote for. Yeah,
1: it's pretty crazy. And Dustin Hoffman does come on to present an award and he gets a very, very long standing ovation.
0: And apparently that wasn't planned. Uh, I don't know who was behind it, but he came out and kind of went rogue and that's why everyone kind of went crazy.
1: As a side note, it came out within, you know, the past year that Dustin Hoffman was accused of sexual misconduct both backstage at this production of Death of a Salesman and on the set of the TV movie adaptation that they did the next year. So... Dustin Hoffman, you're a bad man, and I'm glad you didn't get a Tony nomination.
0: Yeah, and I feel like I watched that in high school English class. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and weirdly enough, I like needed to choose a monologue for like some kind of acting class that I was taking in as like a high school elective, and I chose one of the mother's monologues, <laughs> um, which like I didn't see. I was like, oh, yeah, this isn't age appropriate, but my teacher was like, uh, you also shouldn't
1: be. Doing the mother's monologue. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. So I guess we should start with the Tap Dance Kid because they they opened the show and we had to skip over it last week. This show was actually a hit, even though it it only it won two Tonys. Um, it ran from 1983 to 1985 with 669 performances. Book was by Charles Blackwell. Music was by Henry Krieger, who we know from Dreamgirls and Sideshow, lyrics by Robert Lorick, and it was based on the novel, a young adult novel called Nobody's Family is Going to Change by Louise Fitzhugh, um, who is probably best known for writing Harriet the Spy, and the synopsis is, A young boy from an upper-middle-class black family nurses a dream to become a tap dancer, with the encouragement of his uncle, who's a dancer, despite the disapproval of his father. The second act is devoted to Willie's imaginations of stardom.
0: It had a slow start, but ultimately became a big hit.
1: Yeah, and the uh, the biggest surprise for me when researching the show is that the tap dance kid himself is played by Alfonso Ribeiro, who went on to, you know, famously play Carlton The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I didn't know he had that Broadway background, but then when I was looking him up, I saw that he competed and won on Dancing with the Stars- like, as one of the stars, obviously, which seems like not that I care at all about the integrity of dancing with the stars as an institution, but it kind of seems unfair to like Nancy Grace or whatever if you're competing against <laughs> someone who was the titular tap dance kid on Broadway. Like, of course, of course, he's gonna win. And now you know the Carlton dance comes from. Comes from a classically trained background.
0: Yeah, and he wasn't the only one to uh, get his start. Savian Glover, who has appeared on Broadway many times, he
1: uh, He does a lot of uh, choreography.
0: Choreography. He was one of the driving forces behind Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk in the 90s. Um, and, you know, just choreographed.
1: Shuffle along? Shuffle along. Yeah, a lot of it is tap dance.
0: Yeah, it's tap dance, but it's not your mama's tap dance. Um, I think especially seeing this choreography, I'm surprised by how athletic it is. Yeah. Um, It's really just totally stunning.
1: I think the big thing about this show, I was, like, not super impressed by the score for the most part. Like, you know, if you go by Henry Krieger's other scores that we've listened to, I mean... We haven't listened to Dream Girls on the show yet, but just, yeah. you know, comparing it to Dream Girls and, and Sideshow, this was a third for me. But I think the notable thing about this show is that, like, it contrasts, you know, this sort of amazing spectacle of the tap dancing with kind of a more serious social critique that I was not expecting mm-hmm. about. This is from the... Uh, there's sort of mixed reviews about whether or not it was successful. Um, the New York Times didn't think it was, and... This is what they said certainly the author of the show's book charles blackwell deserves credit for dramatizing a milieu new to the musical theater the black upper middle class and doing so with integrity willie's parents are survivors of ghetto poverty and they now practice a double-edged version of the good life black maid included if the father abhors the possibility that his son will become a dancer he has his reasons we didn't get off the plantation he instructs until we stopped dancing and started doing unfortunately the book lacks the subtlety needed to examine the character's values with sophistication the father, Samuel Lee Wright, is a gruff cardboard spoil sport who is left unredeemed until a cathartic final song and the lengthy song buckles under the heavy thematic burden it must bear. So I think that is like an interesting twist on kind of a classic story that you see a lot where it's like parents are not supportive of their kids' showbiz dreams. But this is like a very, it's, it's a very complex element to, to have in a Broadway musical that you don't really see that often.
0: Yeah, it totally is. And actually, in this book of theater roundups year by year, Otis L. Wernesey <laughs> Jr. Um, says that the book itself is so much stronger than a normal musical book, and he actually was like this show with its themes. If the book writer were given the full creative control, it would make for very interesting and Good, complex play.
1: Yeah, I mean, I and I think it's one of those things where, like, something that we see a lot where the tone of the book does not match what seems like this sort of exhilarating, transcendent, like, transporting quality of the, the tap numbers.
0: My understanding of the show is that, you know, the tap numbers are sort of inserted into this family drama as kind of, like, singing detective-esque, like, dream yeah. fantasies that don't necessarily relate to you know i guess are more of like a comment on what's happening in the story
1: but when that song the song that they talk about that they reference that his dad sings in the end when that song came on i totally like stopped in my tracks i was so startled by it like based on what the rest of the score was like it's he has almost like a rose's turn you know soliloquy style
0: (laughs) reckoning yeah no it's so surprising considering also the score itself is fine but i think Part of what we were saying about Sideshow is that a lot of it just feels, you know, swelling and kind of aimless. Or in my opinion, swelling and kind of aimless. (laughs) I feel like that also reads on this Krieger score as well. But this last number that's, you know, almost 10 minutes long of the father um, delivering this monologue is um, super startling.
1: I wonder if this show... I mean, I feel like we always say this, but I wonder if this show is ever going to come back in any real way and what what that would look like and what the dialogue around that would be.
0: I think it's an important conversation that I think that part of it feels surprisingly fresh.
1: I think so too, and I think it is important that they brought it up and didn't kind of shy away from it.
0: And I think thinking of this father character, there's another complication to him and how he treats his other child, the sister, who um, is like described in the review? She's chubby and kind of nerdy, and she she's actually the one who's interested in reading his law books and pursuing the dreams that he has for his son. Yet he kind of dismisses her and is like, you know, you need to get those your nose out of those books. Like you need to be like the right kind of woman.
1: Yeah, like this. Based on the title, you think it's just going to be about the sun, but it really is like sort of a full family drama. Like everyone kind of has their own journey and their own conflicts, which was something I didn't necessarily expect. So the
0: actual source material
1: was used to make a television movie that premiered five to seven
0: years before the Broadway show. And in it, uh, I think this is actually really cute. The little sister character kind of starts a child's law firm <laughs> and like takes her dad to like child's court in order to like let her brother dance.
1: It's very cute.
0: I think that what surprises me about it and its success is that I feel like a lot of times shows that on their surface seem like they're about one thing, but are actually about another thing have a hard time staying afloat. But this kind of withstood the test and had a pretty decent run.
1: Yeah. Maybe we should talk about the performance Mm -hmm. now because that performance was really incredible. Like that show looks... It just looks like a blast.
0: None of the other performances of the night really took that task on doing such a big, complicated dance number. Um, right.
1: I mean, Lakage did have you know some choreography and spectacle but this is like this would be the one i would recommend people look up
0: and leading the dance charge is the one i guess tony winner from the cast of the night hint in battle
1: yes who uh, who got his big break in the whiz yeah 10 years earlier yeah he's great this is his first of three tonys and then the other win that the show got was choreography which i think is very it makes deserved. a lot of sense oh, it's funny because like we're sort of doing this backwards you know everything we talked about last time was in the second half of the show really in the latter half um
0: sondheim and jerry herman have their tributes but first up we have candor and ebb getting their tribute
1: is from The Rink, which is the ninth musical on Broadway by Cander and Ebb. Now, these two are nothing if they're not versatile in their choice of subject matter. And the music is assertive and accessible. But there is a thread that runs through everything they write. The very positive fact that life is meant to be lived,
0: not observed. The Rink was their ninth Broadway show and was not nominated for Best Musical. I
1: know. It's so funny that they still do this for them, even though it, was, it wasn't it was nominated for Best Musical. And, like, they have them do a full performance and stuff. That's a real, like, fuck you. Candor and Ebb's here. We're going to honor them because they deserve it, which, like, I'm all for.
0: Yeah, and this year there was a Zorba revival that was on.
1: Oh, that's true. And a little piece of trivia for Zorba so we've talked before about people who have won the Tony and the Oscar for the same role. Mm-hmm. But Leela Kudrova, who wins tonight, is the only person who has done that in reverse, where she won an Oscar for, the, for playing that role in Zorba, the original movie, the non-musical version, and then 20 years later. And she also has the longest gap between the wins. So 20 years later, she wins for playing the same role in the revival. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy, yeah. And this revival also was starring... Anthony Quinn. Yeah, who starred in the original movie also. As Zorba the Greek. Yeah. This production of Zorba actually ran a little
0: longer than the original production. I was surprised at how much I liked the recording. I thought it was really good.
1: I didn't listen to it for the purposes of this episode, but I'm excited to dig into it because I've liked what I've heard of it. I like what they do on this, Tony's. But they start with flora the red menace which was like liza. liza doesn't do this one but she started it when she was 19 and she won a tony for it when it all comes true just
0: the way you planned it's funny but the bells
1: don't ring
0: and in During our Candor and Ebb research to talk about the rink, they were kind of looking for a star, someone to star as Flora, and they were like, we were introduced to this little (laughs) ragamuffin (laughs) named When they met her, you know, she was, I guess, 17, and then by the time the show actually got together... She was still in her teen years when she won the Tony.
1: But Liza is really the star of this whole Candor and Ebb tribute. So when they come out with the Al Hirschfeld cutouts for Cabaret, they bring out Joel Grey and Liza... Jill Hayworth erasure. Yeah, we both noted that. <laughs> they did do a, a caricature of cabaret with Jill, but this is a celebration of Liza. They're not gonna do that. Liza's got her tiny little mullet and she comes out and sings cabaret and she has she's wearing this crazy dress that has like a really big slit up the side and she has to do tiny little kicks because she can't kick that high in it. What up? Robert Goulet sings a song from the happy time, which I don't know anything about, but I only noted it because he like messes up his entrance and he's like, have we started? Yeah,
0: I know. (laughs) It's about like, a Canadian photographer. Yeah, uh, this who returns this to his
1: home uh cat. this medley introduced me to some shows that I I knew by name but didn't know anything about. Um, and then Sheeta does a song from Zorba and kills it. Yeah, she holds this one note for like a bizarrely long time. <laughs> Life is what you do till the moment you die. and then 70 girl 70 Liza has a costume change
0: yes life keeps happening
1: every day say yes when opportunity comes your way you can't stop wondering. And then Liza introduces Cheetah doing Chicago with Go Girl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I also had to put in that. And the combined performances of
0: Cheetah Rivera and Gwen Bridden made one of the most memorable nights in the theater. Go Girl.
1: This is just like a love fest for Liza and Cheetah. So mm-hmm. Cheetah does all that jazz. Start
0: the car. I know. That.
1: Chance. And she rips off her skirt to do nowadays, and Gwen Verdon comes out to join her, and everyone is very uh, excited about it. But they don't even dance, they do like the slow part at the beginning. It's good, isn't it which is nice to have them do it but yeah i felt i got a little bit of blue balls from that the most ex- <laughs> the most
0: exciting thing
1: that they do is
0: that they give each other a really good look w- during the lyric you can even marry harry but mess around with ike <laughs> <laughs> And then the next one might be my highlight of all of the medleys. Woman of the Year? Yeah, Woman of the Year. We have Raquel Welsh and uh, Marilyn Cooper performing a really fun number.
1: Yeah, I had never heard anything from Woman of the Year, but that made me very excited to uh, get into it whenever that comes around. The public wants your autograph. That's wonderful. What's so wonderful? You raised a teenage daughter. Wonderful. What's so
0: wonderful? First, you find her diaphragm. The grass is always greener where some other tenant pays bread. I think that that number, along with nowadays and a song from the rink, The Apple Doesn't Fall Very Far From the Tree, all feature this really candor and ebby thing (laughs) um, where it's just like this like fun little jazz score that's played under like bits of talking.
1: (laughs) So then we get into the rink and um, this was a reteaming of Liza and Cheetah because Liza stepped into Chicago for a little bit when Gwen Verdon had to go have surgery because she inhaled a feather. from her (laughs) Um, So they brought in Liza for a little bit. This was a, a flop for them. But their memoir, or it's, I guess it's a memoir, it's like an As Told To, um, is called Colored Lights, which is the opening number from this. So they, and they, you know, really are big fans of the show and speak very fondly of it.
0: It opened in January of 1984 and um, closed in August of that year after playing a little over 200 performances. And... Which
1: isn't that bad, you know? I mean, it's not great, but I always think of, I mean... They're all flops, but I always think of a real embarrassing flop as something like Mac and Mabel, which plays like, you know, 60 performances or less. Yeah. Like, at least it went long enough for, and I mean, we'll get into this, but it went long enough for Liza's contract to expire and for her to get replaced by Stalker Channing. Mm-hmm. even though she did end up checking into rehab three days before.
0: But Stockard was <laughs> ready to get <laughs> well, in there. Was ready to get in there.
1: So, you know, music by John Kander, lyrics by Fred Ebb, book by Terrence McNally. So the synopsis is, this innovative musical is set in a sort of Coney Island of the mind on the ragged fringe of the New York showbiz world. Anna Antonelli's roller rink is about to be demolished, and with it, Anna's sour memories of her Lothario of a husband and her painfully shy daughter Angel. The rink becomes an arena in which mother and daughter examine their past, present, and future. Liza Minnelli and Cheetah Rivera originated the roles of Angel and Anna on Broadway. Damn right. (laughs) And I just want to say... Uh, as an Anna, I was very shocked when I was listening to the cast recording and there's a song where all these guys are shouting like, hey, Anna. <laughs> and they're saying it, they're saying Anna, not Anna, which is especially surprising. So the they were the only women in the cast. The rest of the cast was a group of, I think, six, six or eight men, mm-hmm. including Jason Alexander, who... <laughs> Has a very sweet song on the the cast recording. Yeah, that's
0: really creeped its way out of the rink and into the Candor and Ebb songbook.
1: I really wonder what his career would have been like if he had never gotten Seinfeld, because he won the he won a Tony before Seinfeld. Yeah,
0: for Jerome Robbins, Broadway. Yeah,
1: he's really a great you know musical theater actor. And in in Colored Lights, they talk about how he was backstage after the reviews came out and he was crying and saying they killed our baby. Aww. I know. <laughs> So everyone, it seems like everyone involved really had a good time working on the show.
0: Yeah, Candor says that this was the most satisfying experience that they've ever done. But they
1: also, I mean, it's everyone, every single review has problems with the book. um, And they seem like they don't understand what people didn't like about it. So maybe they're just too close to it. The big issue ended up being Liza (laughs) because... First of all, people didn't like her. Like the character was supposed to be kind of like dumpy and and not glamorous and people really didn't like seeing Liza like that. And she was also going through a lot of personal issues she ended up checking into rehab three days before her contract ended she missed a lot of shows and there's actually an anecdote in here that I don't really know what to make of Eb said I remember nights when I had to take her to the emergency room of a hospital only because she said someone stepped on her foot she played the show in a cast for a while that was all very weird
0: yeah and on it too Kander and Eb say she played a dumpy schlumpy fat girl she had one costume She was fabulous, but the audience did not want to see her be that way. They wanted to see her be Liza Minnelli, and the critics did too. There was a mad moment because of that. Liza went to Halston, who whipped up two red dresses, and during the curtain calls, the two girls ran off. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, and put on those dresses. (laughs) When they came out to bow, they were in those red dresses, and the audience went nuts. They cheered and screamed and thought that was nifty. I said, what am I missing here? Why don't they just accept what we're doing? Why is this necessary? Cooler heads prevailed, and we only used those dresses for about five performances. Even Liza said, "It's cheap, isn't it?" And I said, "Yes." So we stopped. But her instinct was correct. They were rejecting the Liza we were giving them. They would not separate the persona from the actress.
1: It's tough, and they say they also say that Cheetah, you know, had a tough time with it because she's really, really very disciplined. Really, from a a generation of Broadway performer that is not here for any kind of bullshit. Not that Liza's deep personal troubles are bullshit, but I think, you know, it kind of led to a chaotic situation backstage.
0: And um, speaking of Cheetah, she was universally across the board the only thing that anyone liked about this show.
1: And she finally wins a Tony. Yeah, it was
0: her fifth nomination. She had previously been nominated for Bye Bye Birdie, Chicago, Bring Back Birdie, and Merlin the season before where she played like an evil
1: enchantress. (laughs) (laughs) So she finally wins and she gets a big standing ovation and she says
0: I'm very happy that I bought the bottom of the dress this year. I guess talking more about the book, in um, the New York Times review, they kind of say that it has like a Follies-esque gravitas towards it, where Liza and Cheetah's characters, Anna and Angel, are at this roller skating rink, you know, right before its demolition, and kind of like the ghosts of past and present and future visit them, and you know, there's a psychodrama, psychodrama that prevails.
1: People say that most of the book is just them, like, sniping at each other, which people did not really like to see in Candor and Ebbs' book. Candor says, I must have told you after the reviews came out, Terrence went back to see Liza, who was crying because Frank Rich barely mentioned her in his review. She said, he dismissed me in two sentences. And Terrence said, you're lucky. He dismissed me in two very long paragraphs. <laughs>
0: I guess besides Cheetah, the only thing that I saw that was really given a lot of attention was the set, which I think was completely gorgeous and in the final scene kind of is lifted off the stage.
1: And the other thing is that Liza actually begged to be in this show. Like, she really, really wanted to work with Cheetah again, which is kind of funny considering how everything turned out. But they talk about how, you know, this was one show where, like, the audiences really seemed to be responding to it until the reviews came out and everyone was just, like, sitting there stone-faced. And they say that they had an opposite experience with Cabaret where, like, in previews nobody was really getting it. And then once the, the reviews came out, they were like, oh, this is brilliant, they got a standing ovation the next night.
0: Maybe the elements were there. I don't I don't necessarily see it.
1: No, I didn't this score didn't really do that much for me aside from one or two songs.
0: And, you know, I think that there are, Candor and Ebb have like an interesting selection of shows. They reteamed with uh, Terrence McNally and Cheetah a few years later for Kiss of the Spider Woman, which I think like this vision and this kind of tone of a show was fully realized with that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like they employ a lot of the darkness that this has, but make it work in a way that what they were trying to do here felt a little uneven and mismatched.
1: Yeah. It's a shame. It's such a missed opportunity because really, you know, Cheetah and Liza have really been their two main ladies. So it's too bad that they couldn't come up with a better way to to pair the two of them.
0: Yeah, there's like a People magazine expose about them. um, And I think that like what the they were trying to do with the press was frame Liza and Cheetah's relationship as this kind of odd mother-daughter thing that was happening, despite the fact that they didn't even really have enough of an age difference that (laughs) Cheetah could be Liza's mother. We'd come home every night holding our eyeballs. It was very traumatic. It brought up a lot of stuff. Liza admits that prior to her experience, her tendency was to keep emotional matters to herself. Cheetah would say, now come on, babe. It's good to open up some of those closet doors, and I'd say, Cheetah, didn't you see Poltergeist? Do you remember when that thing comes out of the closet and goes, (laughs) ARGH! I've had elbows against closet doors my entire life. I don't want to see the monster. I don't want to remember that. Some of her memories, perhaps, are of her fragile, troubled mother, Judy Garland, who died tragically in 1969. We never got stoned together like the characters in the play, But we did get close by laughing a lot, said Liza. Sure, sometimes I was the mother and she was the daughter, but that shift happens in all relationships. The love was always there, even in the bad times.
1: Man, it just (laughs) seems cruel to try to make Liza dredge up her, her, you know, mother-related trauma. Yeah. Leave Liza alone.
0: you got to stay, baby, tall and proud. Get noticed by the crowd. Shake, baby, make a butt.
1: And you can be a (laughs) (laughs) Against the wall <laughs> glued against the wall. <laughs> to the wall should we move on to baby yeah let's do it poor baby is kind of like an also ran it's really almost like a footnote to this season but I, I don't think it I think it uh, it deserves a little more than that
0: yeah and the number that they perform at the ceremony is seriously amazing yeah
1: it's really fun it opened December 4th, 1983, and it closed July 1st, 1984, and ran for 240 performances, 241 performances. Um, And the music and lyrics were by the team Maltby and Shire, which they're kind of an interesting example where they have had this very long collaboration, but none of their shows have really made a huge impact like I feel like this one might be they have a review called Closer Than Ever that ran off Broadway that I think is pretty popular um, they did the music and lyrics for Big mm-hmm. but this was their first Broadway musical together
0: and I think that for me it suggests a lot of what was going on off Broadway at yeah. time at the time and especially it's scale feel, feels very small I think that tone wise it's very different from something like Little Shopper Nonsense the musical oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of has that scrappy off-Broadway spirit to it.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of the reviews were like, this is this show is just too small for Broadway. But it ended up being expensive. Putting it on Broadway ended up being expensive, and I think that's really what sunk it. Um, and it didn't really have any stars
0: that... I think now some of the cast have been elevated to star status, but at the time it was a yeah. lot of people's um, first times on Broadway or first times in leading roles.
1: Um, And the synopsis is, uh, Baby the Musical examines how parents-to-be experience the emotional stresses and triumphs, as well as the desperate lows and the comic highs that accompany the anticipation and arrival of a baby. Three couples on a university campus deal with the painful, rewarding, and agonizingly funny consequences of the universal experience of pregnancy and upcoming parenthood. There are the college students, barely at the beginning of their adult lives— the 30-somethings having trouble conceiving but determined to try, and the middle-aged parents looking forward to seeing their last child graduate from college when a night of unexpected passion lands them back where they started. I was reading, there's like a Lincoln Center essay about like the career of Maltby and Shire, and when they talk about this show, they write, It was a subject that only Maltby and Shire could have tackled. It's like, Yes, these two men are the only people who could have tackled this show about pregnancy. I can't believe that they let someone publish that. But I do think I do think they do a good job with this score, but still I think that's a little bit that's a little bit tone-deaf. So and so the New York Times review said, at a time when nearly every Broadway musical, good and bad, aims for the big kill with gargantuan pyrotechnics, here is a modestly scaled entertainment that woos us with such basic commodities as warm feelings, an exuberant cast, and a lovely score. Perfect baby is not, but it often makes up in buoyancy and charm what it lacks in forceful forward drive.
0: No, I think that totally yeah hits the nail on the head. And even in the beginning of that review, they talk about how in, you know, 20 years earlier, it wasn't uncommon that like a show of that s- size and scale would be able to have a successful run yeah um, you know Broadway season up against gargantuan hits
1: yeah I mean Broadway uh, in the 80s has really changed already like that was there was sort of a big sea change I think with Cats and I don't know Have Les Mis come over yet or no no, no. no. but I, I think that was starting to be in the water mm-hmm.
0: I think that they had a hard time finding an audience people didn't want to see a musical about babies and <laughs> what I was reading was that like The people who did see it ended up being surprised and liking it, but I think that getting enough people in the door...
1: That's always... You gotta get them (laughs) in the door.
0: And also, I don't really understand how this was happening, but there were weird kind of, like, shower curtains, like, moving projection surfaces that kind of showed time passing and had animated... Animated
1: fetuses? I think animated fetuses. Yeah. Um, And they said that that added a lot of money to the budget of the show.
0: Yeah, the show, like, you know, the orchestra was on the stage. It was like a small orchestra, but it wound up costing $2.75 million um, thanks to that design concept.
1: That's so stupid. (laughs) I mean, I had a great time listening to the cast album. I think this is a, this is sort of a hidden, it's not so hidden because I think those songs, some of those songs have kind of made it into like people's, you know, like audition repertoire and stuff. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I had a good time listening to it. I'm into it. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about it is um, the musical staging
0: was by Wayne Salento, who was an original cast member of A Chorus Line and later has become a big choreographing force here. His musical staging is so fun. And um, yeah, I highly recommend watching um, the performance of I Want It All.
1: Yeah. So the song is I Want It All, which is the three women, you know, just talking about how how they want it all. I want! And they they name check a bunch of famous women that they want to be. And I, ha- I wrote down a list of every <laughs> of every woman that they uh, reference in the song. Scarlett O'Hara, Joan of Arc, Lauren Bacall, Gloria Steinem, Janis Joplin, Annie Hall, Catherine Hepburn, Connie Chung, Madame de Stahl, Mother Teresa, Sally Ride, Lucille Ball, Donna McKechnie, Donna Summer, Donna Reed... Margaret Sanger, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Mead. They might want to rethink a couple of those, but overall, it's a pretty good list. Yeah. It could stand to be a little more intersectional, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> That's
0: true. I don't but think any of these we women were you. thinking about that. <laughs> we see you, Connie Chung and Donna Summer.
1: <laughs> I know, and Donna McKechnie. Yeah. Not, not that she's, uh, you know, yeah, a woman of color, but she is... Undersung hero yeah, of the stage. Yeah, a Broadway deep cut. Although, I guess... <laughs> this you know chorus line kind of made her made her famous at this point
0: yeah I want a Grammy. I want stretch marks I want a pedicure
1: Should we talk about the plays a little bit? Uh, Yeah, why not? Just a teeny tiny little bit.
0: I think that's something um, I didn't necessarily realize um, in this kind of... I know that like the idea of the British invasion refers to the mega musical kind of coming over your phantoms, your lame Mis, but I think I was surprised at how many... Of the plays this season kind of came over the pond, as to say. Because, you know, like we said um, earlier, a different production then was put on of London, of The Real Thing, kind of was the big play winner this year. But these two other plays that kind of had a resounding effect on Broadway, Noises Off and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, also came over the pond.
1: Yeah, I don't think we need to talk too much about these. You know, Noises Off is a... A classic farce. It's, you know, like a play within a play. of Just
0: like the real thing.
1: It kind of is like the bizarro world, the real thing. Mm-hmm. Where the first act is, you know, this theater company rehearsing, rehearsing a farce called Nothing On and everything's going wrong. And then the second act is you see backstage them during a performance, I believe. The opening night, yeah. Yeah, and then the third act is just a performance of the, the show.
0: Mm -hmm. towards the end of its run yeah but yeah it's had two very successful broadway revivals
1: i remember seeing it in high school like seeing a production of it at my high school and thinking it was just like the funniest play ever written and then i went to see the the last broadway revival and just i think i was just in like a bad mood or something (laughs) but i was totally stone-faced through the entire thing and it's not the revival's fault like everyone you know everyone was doing their best but you really have to be in the right state of mind for that kind of those kind of hijinks, and yeah. sometimes I'm not. And I I heard that Andrea Martin really mugged a lot. She did, but it's like, the, what else do you want from that <laughs> show? Like, if you're not mugging it up, you're doing it wrong.
0: Seeing how successful something like the play that goes wrong right. is like currently doing, and how you know it's ending its Broadway run but moving off Broadway, goes to show that people love a good farce.
1: Yeah, people want to see plays going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they want to see the staircase fall down.
0: Yeah, and I think that like in the New York Times review they were saying that um the production team was like wondering if this very British sensibility of like this type of farce would read to an American audience and the
1: answer was yes. Yeah. And you know what's funny is that I I think I remember watching the movie version, which stars, like, Carol Burnett. I don't know who else is in it, but it seems insane that they would make a movie version of this show, which is so theatrical. Like, it feels like it would lose any of its charms. Yeah,
0: Frank Rich said, They made the funniest play that was written during my lifetime into the worst movie I've ever seen. Oh, man. So... That is Noises Off, That's which um, the title comes from a stage direction of, like, you know, noise off stage. <laughs> the other big heavy hitter this season that ended up winning one Tony Award for Best Supporting Actor um, was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It had 378 performances. It opened, well, its run was a little less than a year. It opened in March of 84 and closed in February of 85, but this is seen as David Mamet's masterwork. I think that a lot of his body of work in recent years has been, um, reconsidered. Um, and we talked a little bit about this show, um, because the revival in the Oh four Oh five season was popular and won the Tony for Best Revival, but it's about four Chicago salesmen and their supervisor who work together selling undesirable real estate at inflated prices. The play takes place at the end of a month in which the bosses of the company have declared a sales contest, and the rest of the play is kind of... These sharky, horrible, despicable, like, straight men trying to burn each other and get to the top. Which a lot of people have seen this as, like, a really great look at the dangers of, like, masculinity and capitalism. And I think that this is the a piece that really highlights his trademark use of language where Susan Laurie Parks actually is, actually is like, people don't know what's going on in my play, but no one says something about David Mamet's crazy ass. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Because it is just a lot of, like, grunts and, you know, very abbreviated sentences and incomplete and... Brimming to the sky with four-letter curse words, as uh, the reviewer says. In 1984, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this. But I think that in recent years, his legacy, if you could call it that, has been really tarnished by um, the fact that... He's he's, a pig? He's a pig, and he's gone on recently to, like, attack things like the liberal academics and feminists and this and that. The types of things that people are trying to attack, right now shocking. yeah he's a skeptic of climate change attacks feminism and uh the liberal academia and christopher hitchin said of his 2011 book the secret knowledge on the dismantling of american culture it is an extraordinarily irritating book written by one of those people who smugly believe that Having lost their faith, they must ipso facto have their reason.
1: Wow, I wonder what uh, Thanksgiving is like with his daughter Zasha, star of girls. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I have no idea. Um, it's And, you know, the last, like, few new things that he's written that premiered on Broadway have not done well. One reviewer who was kind of surveying his whole work um, in The Guardian had a really interesting line about Glengarry Glen Ross. The fame mammoth dialogue is just a Tourette syndrome chorus of macho self-pity. I also think that his critique of... Macho self-pity would um, go a little further if he wasn't retreating into the gross right wing. So I think that <laughs> we need to have a support group for David Mamet and Adam Gettle and um, <laughs> just knock some sense Neal into Lebeau. them. <laughs> and Neil Lebeau, <laughs> throw him in the, that <laughs> mix too. The one really interesting thing about Glengarry Gary, Glenn Ross's uh, production that I read in researching it is that after finishing writing the play, David Mamet went to Harold Pinter and was like, I don't know, like, what do you think's the matter with this play? And Harold Pinter's like, the only thing the matter with this play is it hasn't been produced yet. We're <laughs> getting that put on its feet, and then that's wow. Now it kind of
1: um. Okay, so I think maybe we're gonna get into our little bits and pieces of the season. So this season there was a whiz revival with Stephanie Mills that I think was it was just the touring production made a stop on Broadway. It was very poorly reviewed. It it had a it was also directed by Jeffrey Holder, and I think he also did, like, the set design this time, too. And every, the New York Times was like, I can't remember why we even liked this show, which is very rude. And then they had there was The Human Comedy, which was a show by Galt McDermott, who was one of the writers of Hair, mm-hmm. um, that had... It started off-Broadway at the public theater like Hair. It closed very quickly on Broadway.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is it did have a really successful run off-Broadway downtown. And the New York Times reviewer loved it, but wasn't... There was like a Times rule at the time that you can't couldn't review a downtown show again when it appeared on Broadway, um, unless there were significant changes to it. So I think that it, without getting praise from the Times, the bad reviews it got kind of killed it. It's also said that it really benefited from like an intimate performance space and that it kind of got lost in like a big Broadway theater. Oh, there
1: and there was also, this only got one nomination, but there was also a musical called Amen Corner, uh, lyrics by Peter Udell, music by Gary Sherman, which was based on a James Baldwin play um, that got very poor reviews, but it did get one nomination for Best Actress for um, Reda Hughes. So there was a revival of Oliver that year starring Patti LuPone, who did not get nominated. I think that
0: that was sort of a big surprise, but I think that the production, the production also came over from the West End, and I think that it just was... There was this Oliver revival, this The Wiz revival, and also a MAME revival that starred Angela Lansbury, and I think that the lesson learned this season was, especially the MAME and the Oliver were just really trying to recreate the original, which the times were like, well, you guys did a good job doing that, but it's boring as fuck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's very telling that, you know, this was a year where they did have a Best Revival category, but it was still combined plays and musicals, and only plays were nominated None of the musicals got nominations. Is it time for our what? Yes. Okay, so we're bringing, we haven't been doing it consistently, but we're going to bring back what, which is the uh, the thing about this season that makes us say, what? <laughs> <laughs> so our what for this season is that there was actually a short-running musical based on the comic strip Doonesbury. And the book and lyrics were by Gary Trudeau, who wrote the Doonesbury comic. And he took two years off from writing the comics to write this musical. And music was by Elizabeth Suedos, who is probably best known for doing, you know, book, music, lyrics, everything for the show Runaways. Mm-hmm. So the show was not well reviewed, did not do very well. But the craziest thing is that they spun off the Reagan portions of the play into their own show called Ratmaster Ronnie.
0: <laughs> and
1: here's a little, I don't really know what to think of it. So, Ratmaster Ronnie is the name of several musical comedies de- developed by Gary Trudeau and Elizabeth Suedos throughout the 1980s, including a 1984 off Broadway partisan review, a music video, and a made for TV movie starring the Smothers Brothers, Carol Kane, and John Cryer. The shows all share the same basic structure of a faux campaign ad for Ronald Reagan, satirizing his social politics, particularly those regarding dr- drugs and minorities.
0: Oh, my God. That's kind of genius, though. It is,
1: and apparently The Simpsons has parodied it many times, so I think that's probably something that... You know, people who go back and watch The Simpsons now will not recognize that as a reference to this.
0: That's so funny.
1: So the play is presented as 16 interlinking musical numbers, each attacking some political position of Reagan's or examining the effects Reaganomics had on the American economy and culture of the 1980s. Despite the title, only the opening number is performed in the style of old-school hip-hop, with the remainder of the songs being 1980s-style pop.
0: Uh, This is so more psycho than I ever thought that (laughs) it was going to
1: be. I know. So that is... uh, that's our submission to what for this episode of, of my little Tony's. Uh, oh yeah. Lord have mercy. Now let me hear a little bass now, Nancy.
0: So good. So fine. You're cooking now, Mama. Thank you, dear. Oh, the, also the other crazy thing that we forgot to mention is that in celebration of a chorus line becoming the longest running Broadway musical, uh, Joseph Papp receives a 14 karat gold Tony statue. Oh yeah. <laughs> Next time you're in Joe's Pub, remember (laughs) who paid for those
1: seats. (laughs) They sold. They sold. They melted down. (laughs) Okay, I think we can. I think we can call it a day for this one. Yeah, that was that was 1984. And next time we're going to be flashing forward to our most our most current Tonys to date, 2015.
0: 2015. So, all of you fun home stands, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get ready. Get ready
1: to duke it out with the American in Paris apologists. We'll see. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at mylittletonyspodcast at gmail.com.
0: You should like and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts if uh, you're enjoying our show so far. Um, it helps us um, reach other people who might be interested. And, uh, yeah yeah tell a friend and we love hearing from you so (laughs) okay okay
1: have have a good one yep bye